invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. It was several weeks ago in Sunday school that we were talking about a passage of Scripture that Ken was teaching in his weekday Bible study. And as we began to read through that and as I began to think upon these verses and began to meditate upon them to some respect, I felt in some ways obligated to share this with you today to hopefully reinstill what you already know, but through the work of the Spirit to deepen it into our hearts in a very clear and a very obvious way. So as I began to go through this, um, I really wanted to focus on verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 1, but you really can't teach 3, 4, and 5 without looking at verses 1 and 2, as Paul mentioned this morning from 1 Timothy but you can't teach 1 Timothy 1 and 2 and 3, 4, and 5 in the same message. <laughs> I had about 28 pages of notes, and I had to stop and say, I've got to make this too. So we're going to look at just two verses, but I want to read the whole section here, which is really only a partial section of what is an explanation of the gift of salvation. But before we get to the Word, I want to read for you this story that is a true story. I found that in one of the commentaries, I don't remember which one, but here's what it says. Early in the 20th century, there was a young Welsh boy by the name of James, and in search of a better education and life, his parents sent him away to boarding school very far from home. And James writes in his own words, I must add that I suffered at that time from a sickness, which has remained with me all along life's path, and that was homesickness. Homesickness is an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness, of being destitute and unhappy, which stem from it. It is difficult to define homesickness, but to me it means the consciousness of a person being out of his home area and that which is dear to him. My three years at boarding school were very unhappy, and that was only because of this longing. I had great friends there, and I enjoyed the lessons, but... I remember as if it were yesterday, sitting in the church on Sunday night when I had come home for the weekend and suddenly being hit by the thought, this time tomorrow, I shall be in my lodgings at school and all at once I would be down in the depths. You see, for the Christian, this should be something that we can relate to as we long for our true home. You know, we often talk about the reality that we live in this world as temporary beings. This is not our true home. This is not our true body. This is what an old friend would call an earth suit that we inhabit for a very short amount of time before we enter into eternity. Well, as this young man struggled with homesickness and aloneness, and the desperation that came along with this, I believe with all my heart that Peter was writing to a group of believers who were in a very similar position. A large group of believers who longed for their true home and needed to be reminded of the rich blessings that they have in Christ and how, they would, how that would strengthen them in order to help them get through the very difficult times. Now, we won't talk about the difficult times that are mentioned in verse 7. But none of us are strangers to the hardships of life, to the suffering, to the struggling, to the longings that are there for a variety of reasons. 
But what you and I ought to be reminded of first and foremost is that what we should long for most in our lives is to be, re, is to be re, reunited with the one who loved us and saved us and has reserved a place for us in his heavenly dwelling. Let's look together at First Peter. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, but only look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Boy, I tell you, as a believer that's longing for home, this should capture our attention in a very clear way. We'll look in these first two verses at the introduction. We see here the introduction of Peter. We know who Peter is. He was one of the apostles. He was bold and brash. He was so bold to say that all may leave you, all may, all may run away from you, but I, I alone will die with you. Yes, I will go to die with you. And Jesus said to him before the night is over, and a rooster crows three times, you will deny you even know me. And that's, of course, is exactly what happened. So we have Peter here, and he introduces himself much like Paul did in the book of 1 Timothy. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so it's important to understand the terminology that is associated in these greetings, which are so rich and so deep and so full of truth. An apostle, in the very general sense, is simply a messenger. We are all apostles in the sense that we are to be messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see this word used exactly in the same context in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, as Paul writes, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers, or apostolos, the Greek word for apostle, messengers of the churches of glory to Christ. And so in that broad sense of apostle as messengers, all believers today are, to, are able to accomplish the apostolic work through evangelism as we serve the Lord through our church. But there's also a very restricted sense in the word apostle, and that is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this means something very different from the broad and general term of apostolos. Letter A, it means that they are personally chosen by Jesus. He didn't just cast a net, and upon whomever it fell, they were asked to be apostles. He specifically called them to this very specific role. We see this in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him. And we can assume it was just the twelve. It could also be a broader group of people that were there. And he chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. So you see a very restricted use of the word apostle as those that were chosen specifically by Jesus. Letter B, 
an apostle, in this restricted sense, learned the gospel from him. They didn't get it second generation. It wasn't passed on by a faithful grandfather or a loving teacher in the church. It was learned from Jesus himself. Paul would write of his own experience in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, not been taught by any man, is what he means. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was a very unique apostle in the sense that he did not walk with Jesus. He was not listening to the messages as far as we know. We don't know how aware of Jesus' teaching and preaching and miracle ministry Paul was. We do know in the book of Acts that Paul condoned the first martyr in Stephen. So we don't know how closely connected he was, but Paul would say, I did not learn the gospel from any man. I learned it through the revelations given to me by Jesus himself. Letter C, the restricted use of the word apostle meant that they needed to be witnesses of his words and deeds and also his resurrection. This is written by Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, as they give an account of needing to replace Judas, who was a false apostle. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us, excuse me, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So you can see the very exclusive pool of people that could replace Judas as one of the twelve that Jesus has personally called. They needed to be with him from the beginning of his ministry with John the Baptist until he ascended on high back to his rightful place in glory. Continuing on, verse 23, So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, should show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship for which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So very clearly, as we look at that restriction, as we think forward about the calling of Paul, Jesus appeared to Paul in his resurrected state. He revealed himself to Paul in a very personal way. And through these revelations and through this appearing, I believe, as most scholars would believe, that Paul was credentialed as an apostle who had witnessed his works and his teaching and also his miracles. Now, letter D in the restricted sense of the apostle is they possessed special power from the Holy Spirit. Now, let me get your attention here very, very quickly. Don't mishear what I'm about to say. They did not have a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a second experience with the Holy Spirit. But they were given special abilities as a way to authenticate their message as a gift to them as apostles. That's why many who understand and believe in this restricted sense of the use of the word apostle would say that the healing and miracle ministry that we saw in the life of Jesus and is recorded in the the book of Acts was restricted as we have seen it so that their message would be authenticated. That does not mean that God does not heal 
It does not mean that God does not perform miracles through other people, but there isn't the need for the authentication of the message given to the world by these men. And so they were given a special power from the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul said about himself in his own ministry and that of the other apostles in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Make no mistake about it, that in the days of the apostles, there were false apostles that rose up who claimed to perform all kinds of miracles that weren't really miracles. And so there was this need for authentication to these men who were given this very unique role through this outworking of the Holy Spirit that you and I do not see in our modern church today. Again, it doesn't mean that God isn't working, that God isn't a God of miracles. It just means it's different than it occurred in the days of the New Testament and of the apostle office that was occupied by these unique individuals. So we see Peter, an apostle called by Jesus. Secondly, we see the recipients, the individuals that Peter was writing to. Verse 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so this was a large group of people over a large region who were believers in Jesus Christ, who understood the hardships that were associated with being a believer and first century Christianity. And so Peter is very keen to call them aliens because that's exactly what they were. Not from outer space, but a group of people who didn't belong in the place that they lived. That is what it means to be an alien. It is a sojourner in a strange place. It is an individual who is among a people who is not his own. That's how we are to view ourselves today. We are to consider ourselves as aliens who temporarily reside in this physical world with an understanding that our true home is in heaven with God the Father for all of eternity in a dwelling that God has reserved for us as a part of our future inheritance. You see, when your life is crumbling around you, when you feel like you're out of place and you don't fit, when you're being persecuted for your faith, when you are homesick, you need to remember that this is temporary. This is not who you really are. This is not where you really reside. There is something far different and far greater than we can even begin to understand in eternity that God has reserved for us. Paul would write in the, in the book of Philippians, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that this is temporary, not our true home, most especially as we long for entrance into eternity, as we deal with the struggles of this temporary world that we live in. We need to be reminded that we are aliens scattered abroad awaiting the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, not only are they aliens, but they are chosen. Verse 1 says, who are chosen? That word chosen very simply means to select. Now, you remember grade school days. And for some, it was a very brutal exercise when recess came about. And it was time to make teams, right? And somebody would say, I choose you. And I choose you, right? That means to select. We want to make these very clear and obvious words very complicated. But that's exactly what it means. It means that these aliens who are scattered abroad 
are chosen. Now, Peter would recount from the Jewish believer's perspective their remembrance of God calling out a unique people for himself. And so as you look at what Peter would say later in this book, you'll see these all cap words, which are direct quotes from Old Testament. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so the very obvious question is this. If the nation of Israel was not always God's people in temporal time and space, how did they become God's people? Well, that's very clear. God said, you are going to be my people. I am choosing you out of all the nations of the world to be a unique people for me and for me alone, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Isn't that exactly what happened to the nation of Israel? So this is what it means to be chosen. It means that God has selected us. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 4.37. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power highlighting the personal investment of God into the calling out of the nation of Israel as He has given, and He alone has given, the praise and the glory for bringing them out of the nation of Egypt from this horrible slavery that they had endured. Jesus would say in John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He'll say in verse 65, And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now as we look at the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, many, many people will say, Well, you know, that just doesn't sound fair. That just doesn't seem right. I don't know how God could select some for salvation and not others, or to not allow a blanket extension of salvation to all of the world. But here's the question that I would ask. Does God owe anyone forgiveness? Is God obligated to extend mercy and grace to any individual? The answer to that question is absolutely not. We don't, we, we don't deserve any good thing that would come from God. Would God not be just if He chose no one to be saved. Well, yes, he would, because he is God. You see, as God, he declared what is truth. As God, he is the one who sets the standard. Since he is God, he is the one that sets, if you will, the rules by which this universe he created operates under. Paul would say in Romans 9, verses 14 and 15, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. I'm sorry, I've got my slides out of order. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So let me read this quote from a, um, a commentator who passed away in the early 1950s, a guy by the name of A.W. Pink. You may have heard this name before. And he speaks of this seeming injustice that exists within the mind of man as we think about this doctrine of election or predestination. Here's what he writes. Now, he's an academic, so he writes in academic language. So you have to, you have to listen very carefully because it's, it's rich and deep. 
as most, commentator, most commentators are. He says, we are well aware that what we have written is in open opposition to much of the teaching that is current, both in religious literature and in the representative pulpits of the land. We freely grant that the postulate of God's sovereignty with all its corollaries is at direct variance with the opinions and thoughts of the natural man, but the truth is, the natural man is quite unable to think upon these matters. He is not competent to form a proper estimate of God's character and ways. And it is because of this that God has given us a revelation of his mind. And in that revelation, he plainly declares, and this comes from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now Paul's right there and say we have a hard time understanding that and we have a harder time agreeing with that, that God's thoughts and ways are way beyond ours and we are incapable of understanding them. Mr. Pink goes on to say, in view of this scripture, Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, it is only to be expected that much of the contents of the Bible conflicts with the sentiments of the carnal mind, which is enmity against God. Our appeal then is not to the popular beliefs of the day, nor to the creeds of the churches, but to the law and testimony of Jehovah. All that we ask for is an impartial and attentive examination of what we have written, and that made prayerfully in the light of the lamp of truth. Stated very, very concisely, with great articulation and basically says this, we can't understand God's, God's ways. We can't understand God's doings. But because his ways are not like our ways and his thoughts are not like our thoughts, we are dependent upon the revelation that is his truth that has come from Jehovah himself. So to choose means that God has selected, yet the tension exists throughout the scripture that says man must also choose. Isn't that right? He chose us, but we still must choose him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus would say in Matthew 11.28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John would write in the book of Revelation, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water out of life without cost. Now, as we see the very clear teaching in the Bible, that man must choose, that does not negate the truth that God has chosen first, which is what we tend to do in our carnal mind and in our finite thinking. We take one scripture to negate another scripture without allowing scripture to interpret itself in the breadth of the revelation of God. So how do we reconcile the tension that exists between God choosing us and our needing to choose him individually? And the simple answer is this. We have to trust in God's sovereignty. If you and I get hung up on all that we can't explain or understand, we will become paralyzed in a life of faith that trusts in the revelation of God independently from my ability to understand 
or explain. So we trust in God's sovereignty. And here's what we want to emphasize as we think about God choosing us, is this mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve, and grace is God blessing us even though we don't deserve it. Mercy is deliverance from judgment. Grace is extending kindness to the unworthy. And so what is the basis of our salvation? The basis of our salvation is that we are saved by grace through faith. And so as we deal with the tension of of God choosing and our need to individually respond, we must trust in the sovereignty of God. So Peter is writing to these aliens scattered abroad who are chosen by God, and it goes on to say, according to foreknowledge. This describes how these aliens and how you and I today were chosen. We were chosen according, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when we see the word foreknowledge, we have two ways that we can interpret that. The first option is this. God knew who would would choose him. So God looked from eternity past and saw that John would choose and Mike would choose and Karen would choose and Lisa would choose. And so out of that foreknowledge... God looking forward and being omniscient and knowing knowing everything. He simply chose those who he knew would choose him. That's one way of looking at it. But in context of what scripture teaches, foreknowledge means that God chose those that he wanted to choose independent from his knowledge of who would or who wouldn't choose him. The word foreknowledge means to foreordain. That's what the word means. The word means foreordained. Now there are many, many words in the Bible that have alternate translations, alternate applications and understandings. This is a very narrowly interpreted word. Foreknowledge means to foreordain. We see it used in this limited way in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus and his crucifixion. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Not only did God look forward from eternity past and know what was going to come to his one and only son Jesus, he predetermined, he foreordained that this was exactly what was going to happen. God didn't say, oh no, look what they're about to do. What am I supposed to do to this? Oh my goodness, they're going to kill my son. No, that's not what God did. God said, that's the plan. Before there was a need for the plan of redemption, God had it already all worked out. And he determined from eternity past that his one and only son was going to come at the exact time and die on the cross in that exact way at the hands of this exact man so that he could secure the salvation of the exact individuals that he chose according to his foreordained plan. These people that have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, letter D, by the Spirit's power, Verse 2 continues to say that they were chosen by the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This explains the role of the Holy Spirit in securing the salvation of those that God has chosen from eternity past. Listen to it like this. Our salvation is initiated and completed in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
the outworking of God's choice of the elect made in eternity past, according to the foreknowledge of God, begins in time by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit encompasses all that the Spirit produces in our salvation, giving us faith, prompting us to repentance, giving to us regeneration, securing for us our adoption by the Father. I've heard a lot of people say, so when did all of that happen? I mean, how does it work? God gives us faith and a heart to repent and makes us new. So what's the order of sequence? How long does it take between our faith and our repentance and our adoption? It's all just like that. According to the foreordained plan of God in eternity past, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the now, in an instant, this is what God has done for us through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Therefore, election or the redemptive plan of God becomes a reality and a life of a believer in the here and now through this gift of salvation, which is the work of God, which is carried out by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a lot, right? It's so difficult to even begin to wrap your mind around this incredible truth It seems so difficult and perhaps impossible for us to justify and to explain and to rationalize. But this is exactly what has taken place through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in its most simple form, the work sanctify means to make holy, which means to set apart. When God chose the nation of Israel to be a royal priesthood, He set them apart for Himself. He declared them to be set apart and holy, a people for himself. Now, there's two ways that we understand this. Both of these are true, but the first way speaks most specifically to what is insinuated here or implied in this passage of Scripture. So, letter I in our outline is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification speaks of a spiritual reality which is independent from our physical existence in this world. So positional sanctification is the instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit to put upon the elect at the moment they're given faith and repent and are made new. It is put upon us the very righteousness and holiness of Christ in the very instant of our salvation. So when God the Father looks upon the elect, those that He has called out for salvation, He sees the covering of the holiness of Christ enveloping us. That's we are as white as garments. That's why there is no hint or stain or blemish of sin. We've been covered by the very righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ impugned upon us. God puts that upon us and it describes our positional sanctification. But the continuation of this work of sanctification to make holy, I'm sorry, let me read this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verse 11. Paul speaks to this, some, some were, excuse me, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Speaking of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, impugning upon us 
the very righteousness of Christ. So what is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit? That which we cannot do for ourselves, that which we cannot do in our own strength, in our own power, that is, letter I-I, it is progressive sanctification. It is this ongoing process of our being conformed to the image of His Son, so that what is true of us positionally in our spirit becomes more true of us and our physical presence and living a life that reflects the very holiness and righteousness of God. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It is to make us more like the Son so that we reflect more of His holiness and more of His righteousness, more of His light in this lost and dark world. Romans 8, 28 and 29 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Our salvation, completed by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, imposes upon us this expectation, letter E, that we are called to obey. We're not saved to pretty up the church. We're not saved to occupy a seat. We're not saved so somebody will be a warm body in a nursery or throw a few butts in the plate to to fund the mission. We are called to obey. That's how verse 2 continues. Chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. That is the mark of a true Christian. It is the ongoing pursuit of obedience in this life. This is what Jesus emphasizes as he's getting ready to depart from this world. He says in John 14:23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So we are called to obey as the implication of our being called by God for this salvation. So in letter F, this is implied in salvation. Verse 2 ends, be sprinkled with His blood. All of this is mixed together and this in this amazing call from God to salvation through the doctrine of election, that we would be sprinkled with His blood. To be sprinkled with His blood is a very clear reference to the atonement, which would be at the front and center of the mind of a Jew. If you said the word atonement to a Jew, they, they did not go, now what did that mean? And, and what took place at the atonement? And how does that apply to my life? They knew instantly and deeply what the sprinkling of blood symbolized in their own spiritual worship. The sprinkling of blood speaks of the covenant between God and man and man's response to this covenant, which is cemented, if you will, in the blood. All the way back when this was instituted in the, in the book of Exodus, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and of all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the covenant. God said, we agree. Covenant. 
Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men to the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Covenant. All that God has said, we agree. That's the covenant. So Moses sealed the covenant then, verse 8, He took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see, our salvation comes to us through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ as He died on the cross and it is His blood which seals the covenant between God and man. All that He has said, we will do. We will love you. We will serve you. We will obey you. We will live a life consecrated to you. That's our covenant. And that covenant that we make with God is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews would cement this truth in in Hebrews 12.24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. You and I owe our salvation to the choosing of God according to His foreknowledge, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, called to obey Him, and we've made that covenant with God through the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Now let's look very quickly as we close at the results. The results we find in the last words of verse 2. As we think about being aliens, chosen by God, according to His foreknowledge, Sealed in a covenant of Jesus' blood, Peter writes, Now may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace from God and peace with God is the result of this great gift of salvation. I just want to say that it is a travesty For these two verses to be read and glossed over as if it's just a, hey, how you doing? I'm doing fine. This greeting is so rich and so meaningful because it speaks of the sovereign work of God in the lives of those who call Him Father and claim to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We have been chosen by God according to His foreknowledge, his predetermined plan. That is the grace of God. He didn't have to do that. We are certainly not deserving of that. There isn't any future potential that would ever require God to even consider such a thing. We've been washed in his blood. We've been cleansed from the debt of sin. That's the mercy of God that results and our being at peace with God. And the next several verses are just simply going to be a declaration of praise because of the great gift of salvation that God has given to us. Do you long for home? Not where you were born and raised, not where all your kinfolk live, not where you're known. Where your true home is.
We should desire that more than we desire anything else in this world. To be ushered into eternity, to see God as He really is, to dwell in God's habitat, whatever that might specifically mean, will be the greatest experience you and I will ever, ever know. In fact, we would not even be able to articulate how great that will be. I remember when my kids were young and they would talk about heaven. Daddy, what's heaven like? Well, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I said, well, yeah, but what does that mean? What is that like? I said, well, think about it like this. Think about the happiest, best day you've ever had in your life. Think about that day. Maybe it was a birthday party. Maybe it was just how you found it at Christmas. Whatever that day might have been. Think about that day. Heaven will be a thousand times better than that. I don't know that a young child can contemplate what a thousand times means. But for you and I today as adults who understand salvation, heaven will be infinitely greater than the best day we've ever had. And we should long for that more than we long for anything else in this world. Would you pray with me? Father, in our carnality, we recognize the attachment this world has for our lives. And there are so many good things in this world that you have richly blessed us with enjoying. And as you bring those to mind, we give you thanks for those things. Our families, our health, your provisions for our physical need, your constant presence in our life to comfort us and encourage us. We know that we've been rescued from the consequence of sin. But Father, may you grow in us a longing to be forever removed from the presence of sin and to see you in all of your glory and all of your splendor and majesty. To be so compelled to bow before you to not even be able to gaze upon you because of how glorious you are. God, would you help us to long for that day more than we long for anything else in this world? Because we know positionally nothing compares to that. But in the here and now, there are so many things that have a grasp on us. Would you show us what those things are? Would you empower us through your spirit to let go of those things? Would you enable us to experience the freeing victory that is ours through our salvation? God, we thank you that you have revealed to us the truth about who you are. May we just marvel in its reality and be carried away by its splendor. Father, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves for giving to us what we are never deserving of, this great gift of salvation. We praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing a song of praise to him.